the HHW LOD Podcast Network proudly presents Real Heroes, the podcast that takes a critical look at comic book movies. The good. I am Iron Man. The bad. I punish the guilty. And the worthless. I am the law! to this day 30 some odd years later this is russ and your real heroes for superman the movie this week are jim john and jordan evening fellas so we're finally here real heroes superman the movie yes after much deliberation consideration redoing and restarting we have arrived and I think it's only fitting we cover Superman the movie because it is pretty much the archetypical superhero movie. It really set the template for pretty much every superhero movie after it. So it's kind of a good starting point, a good organic place to start our endeavor here on the real heroes. Indeed, indeed. So I think we'll start off. We'll get right into it. We got a lot to cover. This is this is a big big movie. I think a lot of us are going to have a lot to say. So. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about production details. We'll we'll give you the kind of the skinny on the uh, the hard facts. And uh, so, Superman the movie was released December fifteenth, nineteen seventy eight. So right around Christmas time, uh, it was directed by Richard Donner and written by, strangely enough, uh, Mario Puzo. Now, um, for some of you younger folks may not know who Mario Puzo is. Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather. So a bit, a bit of strange bedfellows. We have the writer of The Godfather penning a uh, superhero movie. Hence the Brando connection, I guess. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So yeah, so uh, Puzo was probably the Brando connection. I remember hearing a, a bit of advice that Francis Ford Coppola gave to Richard Donner at the time, and he, he pretty much said that uh, Brando will come up with any excuse not to go out onto set that he possibly could, and... Apparently, Brando came up with some some whoppers about uh, the fact that uh, Krypton, Kryptonians are aliens. Nobody knows who they look like, and they could pretty much put a puppet up and have him do the voice, and, and it would work that way. So Brando, always a character um, from from the word go, and uh, I can't imagine uh, what Donner probably had to go through working with him uh, at at that time. Well, not only that, he got paid like an astronomical sum for that time. I think he got paid close to, I think it was a million dollars for like, you know, his what, 20 minutes in the movie or, or, you know, or what have you. And then the long voiceover at the end of the first act. But, uh, I mean, that was huge news. And it was the first time when I, being a little kid when the movie came out, that was the first I'd ever heard of Marlon Brando. I was like, why is this a big deal? You know, why are they paying him all this money to, to be in Superman? I mean, I didn't know Marlon Brando from, you know, the man in the moon at that point. But I remember that being such a big deal that he was getting paid so much to, uh, to be in the film to like, I guess, lend his legitimacy to it. But I have also heard what you're saying, Russ, that he was kind of, he was a bit of a prima donna on the set. And he's clearly the headliner, which was kind of 
you know, it takes you back to watch it now and see Marlon Brando's name come up first, you know, in the beginning of the film. You know, it makes a lot of sense. I guess nobody knew who Christopher Reeves was at this time, so. True. So, yeah, I mean, in, in the early days, it was pretty much billed before anything used to, to, to get the studio to buy off on it. It was Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman, and I think the original poster even had Gene Hackman with, like, the mustache uh, on. It didn't even have a clean-shaven Gene Hackman, so it was just kind of uh, one of those early early promo things to, to get everybody excited about it. Um, so, like we mentioned, Gene Hackman playing Lex Luthor, maybe somewhat of an odd choice uh, at, the, at the time, but, you know, definitely uh, the big-name casting between Brando and Hackman to kind of get folks into the seats and get, and get them excited about it. Yeah, Hackman had done a lot of, like, just very serious, I mean, the French Connection, the Conversation, uh, those kind of movies for, for quite a while, you know, action-oriented, gritty dramas, and his casting as Superman was definitely uh, something unusual for his career at that point. Yeah, yeah, for definitely, definitely. So then we have Margot Kidder, who I always just thought was a strange choice. Uh, not my vision of Lois Lane, but uh, but I guess she she pulled it off okay. I don't know if it bothers any of you guys, but Margot Kidder's voice is like a chainsaw cutting through glass for me. <laughs> I, I never noticed it. I'll, I'll be paying attention for it next time I see it. I just, I don't know. You know what? It actually plays really well because she's like a chain smoker in the movie, but I just can't. I don't know something about her voice. Anyway, you won't get too much disagreement from from me, sir. But and then Christopher Reeve, you know, newcomer Christopher Reeve, that uh, that kind of came on and really defined the role for at this point probably several generations uh, of of Superman fans. I mean, it, it's been imitated and mimicked and um, you know, carried over into various other mediums, not just the movies, but you know, it's carried over into the TV show, into the cartoon, and into the comics. Etc. So he definitely made a mark, and you know a lot of people, especially younger folks nowadays, know that you know Christopher Reeve now deceased. That a lot of it may be sentimentality, and I don't think it was. I think he was pretty well revered in that role prior to his unfortunate horse riding accident, and then you know as as his health kind of deteriorated over time, and then eventually passed away. So I don't, I never really uh, took his fame and whatnot as as like a sympathy thing. No, absolutely not. In fact, uh, up until Superman the movie, really, all the superhero movies that we had had or television shows had kind of taken that Batman campy uh, aspect, like the Batman, the Green Hornet, things like that. Christopher Reeve took the role of Superman very seriously, and I think that's what really set his performance apart. Um, what's really bizarre to me in doing some research for the show is like all the different actors that were up for the role of Superman before they chose Christopher Reeve, uh, Warren Beatty. James Caan, uh, Stallone was uh, uh, campaigning for a long time uh, to be Superman, uh, Burt Reynolds, Chris Christopherson, uh, Nick Nolte, Robert Redford, uh, Schwarzenegger, even at that time before he was a known commodity here in America, and John Voight. I can, I can, I don't, personally, I can't really picture most of those guys as Superman. Um, but you're absolutely right, Russ. Like, Chris Reeves' performance in this movie is so iconic and informed every like version of superman going forward i would say i mean even in the comics uh it, you know the character reflected back from the movie uh, is is more like what we see in the comics nowadays i wish there was test footage of burt reynolds auditioning or nick nolte <laughs> hold on lois <laughs> why do i envision norm macdonald playing burt reynolds auditioning for the role of superman on jeopardy yes and go <laughs> 
Why was that never a Saturday Night Live skit? I don't know. But we had, you know, a couple other uh, veteran actors. I mean, Ned Beatty, who was a no quantity at that time for sure. Jackie Cooper, one of the original Little Rascals uh, and big character actor as Perry White. And I think he just knocked it again, knocked it out of the park as Perry White, just as that loud, you know, grisly, uh, gruff newspaper reporter that, uh, uh, you know, that just you know was interested in getting the story and being sensational and everything else. We had uh, Mark McClure, who who played Jimmy Olsen, and his career didn't really, I would say, blossom too much uh, after the Superman movies. He didn't really do a, a whole lot of stuff other than the Superman movies. In fact, he even uh, showed up in Supergirl uh, several years later as a as a bit part. So and Smallville, I think. Yeah, I think everybody in this cast uh, <laughs> had a turn at doing uh, uh, at least some sort of role on Smallville uh, over over the years. And then who can forget, uh, as I call it, Valerie uh, Vavavoom Perrine as... <laughs> no argument here, man. She is a very uh, attractive young lady. I approved. So just in general, you know, some, some cast of unknowns at the time, some veteran actors, and I think it made for a pretty well-rounded flick, and I think uh, a lot of good choices overall. I think the one uh, performance, and it was kind of weird because they dubbed, they ended up dubbing Christopher Reeve's voice over his. But one of the like underrated um, uh, performances in this movie, I think, really, is Jeff East as young Clark Kent. I mean, he really does a great job of selling, you know, getting us sympathetic to the character. I mean, especially since, I mean, we don't even see Christopher Reeve until like 45 minutes into the movie and then Superman for another 20 minutes after that. So as far as like getting us in tune with Clark Kent, why he felt like an outsider and all these other things and kind of getting us rooting for him, Jeff East really lays a good foundation in that first third of the film. Yeah, definitely. And, and again, another veteran actor. I think, I want to say he was Glenn Ford's stepson or something like that, but I th- he was related to Glenn Ford in some way. And again, Glenn Ford playing Jonathan Kent, another another one of those uh, veteran actors that they brought in for a very very small role, but very pivotal role in in my opinion. As as we uh, as we talk about the movie further, we'll uh, we'll we'll discuss that in a little more detail. A little bit of numbers talks. The movie grossed 134.2 million dollars. So in 1978, not a bad chunk of change uh, for the d- domestic box office. And uh, 166 in the foreign, which um, so puts puts its total at, at pretty close to 300 million dollars worldwide uh, in 1978 dollars, which again pretty good. Adjusted for inflation, um, it ranks 63rd on the all-time list at 460 million dollars adjusted for inflation, and that's per uh, Box Office Mojo, where I, I pay a lot of attention and, and look at look at all these crazy stats and things like that. It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 95%, which, if, if any of you have ever been to Rotten Tomatoes, that's pretty phenomenal for a movie to score uh, that high. It's, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty unprecedented, and especially for a superhero movie to, to rate that high. What was the budget, Russell? $55 million according to Wikipedia. And according to IMDb. Although I don't know how that's, I don't know how they counted that in since they filmed the first two at the same time. Yeah, that's that's where it gets a little tricky. Um, you know, I don't know. I I've heard that the budget numbers are an even split, like they just took one and two and then split it in half. Hard to say, but fifty five million back then was um, a pretty a pretty impressive amount of money. I think you know Star Wars was made for what twelve million. I think back you know back in the day. So yeah, in this time period, that was a huge huge budget, and a lot of it was due to Donner 
you know, allegedly going over budget, a lot of long, very long uh, production schedule and shooting and, and things like that. Um, it was nominated for three Oscars that year for 78. It didn't win any, unfortunately. Um, it was edited, it was nominated for editing, for sound, and for original score, which uh, you heard at the open of this movie. And, uh, you know, John Williams, you know, even to this day, is kind of the master of the of the movie score. I mean, you know, it's, you know, you know, we get Jaws, and then we get uh, Star Wars, and, uh, you know, Superman, and it's just, you know, on and on and on. I mean, John Williams is just kind of the, the, the master of the, of the movie score, and I think the Superman movie score is just one of those iconic things. You know, you hear three or four bars of it, and you know exactly what it is right off the bat. Absolutely. Like I said, it's, it makes perfect sense for us to kick off this series with this movie. It was, you know, the archetypical superhero movie and pretty much every superhero movie after it is, is barred from it. I mean, we see the same structure of the, you know, um, the sympathetic, the sympathetic, uh, character, the origin, and then, you know, meeting the foe head on. It's just, um, it was, for me, I think the reason it really uh, sticks out and, and stands out among its peers is that it was the first superhero movie to kind of quasi-take its, itself seriously. Like I said, it was uh, the point I was trying to make before, like with the, after the uh, Adam West Batman show, uh, superheroes had just been camp, strictly camp, strictly for comic effect, you know, no no uh, no ideas of, of behind, behind telling a serious superhero story at all. Uh, really, uh, until this. And I, I agree, there are some moments in this that are kind of campy, but overall, it, it's a movie that, you know, proves that if you have a good script, good director, and a good cast, you're gonna make a good, you can make a good superhero movie, and it can be serious, and, and it doesn't have to be, you know, that kind of Adam West goofiness. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. So now we're going to talk about the general movie discussion. Who wants to go first? I have talked enough. I want to say that the opening gave me chills to start off, and then it got really long. <laughs> like, do we really need the editor in the opening crawl? Hey, man, um, it was the 70s. That's how they did things. Yeah. Yeah, it felt uh, it felt dated right off the bat. But it was cool. The, the music is so awesome, and... Uh, the kind of fly-by Superman graphic uh, names are pretty cool. It just gets old a little quick. Yeah, that's one of those things when the first time you see it, it's like, that's pretty badass. And then, yeah, like you said, okay, how many times have we seen this movie? It's like you're you're watching it for the first part, and then when they like have the S logo come in, you're hitting the fast-forward button on your remote because it's like, okay, I get it now. I, I get it. We didn't mention in the uh, when we spoke about the cast, Terrence Stamp is just an awesome General Zod. And I wanted to ask you guys, because I certainly don't remember, Did everyone, was it common knowledge that both films were done at the same time and that it was kind of like a two-movie deal? I think, in general, it was. My, my problem was, I when I first saw it, it was on VHS in like 1981. So I was like nine, you know, 80, probably 80, 81. So I was like, you know, eight or nine years old. And I really didn't keep up with all that. All I remember was my uncle rented it from the library and rented a VCR and took it to my grandparents' place and let it, and let me and my cousins and my brothers watch it. And it was, he was pretty adamant about the whole, oh yeah, they're making Superman too. It's, it, you know, it, it, it should have been out already and it's coming. So I kind of knew it was coming, but I didn't really, I wasn't all into the back end production of it, you know, back then just cause, it, just cause of, you know, I think my age. 
I was just thinking as a standalone, you know, if you're watching Superman as a standalone and you get that great Terrence Stamp Zod scene and, you know, you have Nan and Ursa and that whole, you know, that whole setup, you must have been thinking, like, what was with those guys? You know, are we going to see them again or are they going to, you know, you might even think they were going to be the villains in this movie, like find their way back by the end. Um, yeah. See, I thought that by uh, when I saw it the first time, uh, I Saw it in the theater. I was eight years old, I think, nine years old, something like that. And I remember, like, Star Wars being the first movie that really made me aware of, um, you know, how cool movies could be. It was the first movie I remember seeing and going, wow, that was so awesome. And then Superman, for me, was like the second movie like that. So I, you know, hearing my me talk about it, am I looking at it through nostalgic uh, goggles? Probably. But I remember seeing it in the movie theater and just as a little kid feeling that thrill of actually seeing, you know, live action superheroes that were cool and fun and, and, you know, fun to watch. The whole thing with Zod and everything, I thought they were going to be the villains in that, in that movie. And then, it, you know, to find out they were going to be in the next movie kind of was a mind blower to me at that, at that age. Cause I was still getting in touch with the idea that there was going to be another Star Wars movie, you know, <laughs> cause I was like seven or eight years old. So, uh, but I remember just the, the, you know, I, like Russ said at the beginning of the show, you know, the chills he gets when he hears that theme. I do too. And I, I flash right back to, to being like, you know, at seven or eight years old and watching that movie, uh, right before Christmas time. I also remember it was the first time ever I'd seen the toys on the shelf for Christmas out before the movie had come out. I know, like, Star Wars really was the first movie to kind of capitalize in a big way on the merchandising. Um, I mean, there had been like Planet of the Apes figures before and things like that, but, you know, the Star Wars action figures and toys were, you know, the first really big, uh, market, uh, mass market, uh, you know, um, uh, cash in like that. And the first time I'd ever seen the toys come out before the movie were the 12 inch versions of the Christopher Reeves Superman for Superman the movie. And I remember seeing them in the store and go, oh, this movie isn't even out yet. How can I have these toys? And nowadays, I mean, obviously, you know, we had Avengers toys, what, two or three months before Avengers came out or, you know, whatever. But at that point, it was a huge deal to me as a little kid. And uh, just, you know, being able to, to see the, the movie at that time, I mean, the production values kind of seemed dated and slow or whatever now. But at the time, it was very much, um, you know, innovative. And the whole opening scene with Krypton, I mean, that production uh, design there, like the whole crystalline uh, art direction there and the whole way Krypton looked with all the, the white cliffs and the little, you know, um, cutouts in them where you could see like the fake people. But I mean, to an eight year old that, you know, it looked like another world being, you know, consumed by a red, you know, red sun. But, um, it was just, you know, it, it was a mind blower to me at that age. And it's still, like I said, I have great nostalgic feelings for it, but even, you know, taking that, that aspect of it away, uh, it, it really is an iconic movie and, and it's influenced like everything after it, I think. And now I have talked too much, so I'll pass it on. I still love the hula hoops. Those are the coolest things. When those three villains are standing there and Jor-El is doing his thing and they get the crazy visages of the of the council that, that's been parodied and, and used many times, I still love the hula hoop thing. That's just the coolest visual little illusion that, that, uh, that just, I, I, I just, I dig that. That wasn't really something we had seen as for like when you'd seen high tech or whatever, like a, a technologically advanced, you know, civilization in movies before. It wasn't done in like crystal technology. It wasn't that kind of art direction at all. And you know, like the glowing uh, robes that they wear by you know the, the by you know oversaturating them with lights off off camera uh, to make them glow. You know, when they're having the the Council of Science uh, meeting to 
you know, tell Jor-El to keep his mouth shut about Krypton blowing up. You know, that was a great effect, I thought. And the whole, the whole design instead of carrying over to the Fortress of Solitude, too. And the whole idea that his father's spirit was embodied in the crystal. At that point, that had not really been expressed in, in movies as, you know, being in, in, in you know, as far as art direction depicting an advanced culture, you know, you'd always seen like giant computers and robots and all this other stuff. And, you know, this Krypton was just like very stark, very sterile and, you know, very consciously so with the art direction of the production design. Hey, Jordan, what's your experience? You know, we've been talking about seeing it in the theater and obviously that was not possible unless you were time traveling. Yes, I flew backwards around the earth about 700 times and then uh, <laughs> went back to see it. Did you catch it first on, like, cable or video, or or is this the first time you've watched it? Uh, help us out. <laughs> well, today, which just happens to be my 25th birthday, which I'm not saying to be like, uh, celebrate me, but just to point out the timeline, is the first time I've seen the movie all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces here and there. As longtime Legion of Dudes listeners will know anyway, I'm not a Superman fan. I think Superman's pretty dumb and boring. So this was the first time I saw it, and I've got to say, I actually really enjoyed it quite a bit. I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but it's not a movie that if someone went, hey, you want to watch Superman? Then I'd be like, no, I'd rather go, you know, wash my hair or something. You know, I would watch this again for sure. It was a lot of fun. Just back to the Zod thing for, for a second. Um, it's almost disappointing the way that they went about Lex Luthor after you get a taste of Zod, you know what I mean? Like, Zod is a yeah. very serious threat in the beginning of that film. And he wants to kill Jor-El and all of his heirs, right? That's the line. And, you know, then we get we get a very different Lex Luthor. I mean, I think Gene Hackman was awesome for the script that they gave him. I think he totally nailed it. But we can go on and on about the uh, real estate scams of Lex Luthor. You know, it really just didn't seem like a very serious threat. They kind of make him, you know, his whole gang is a is a bunch of goofballs, and they really don't take him seriously. Well, Miss Tessmacher doesn't take him seriously. I think Otis does, but who could take Otis seriously? <laughs> Otis takes him way too seriously. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that makes yeah. it a joke, you know, on its own. So it's just kind of, it was definitely a change in tone. When you go from Zod to the destruction of Krypton, where, like, people are just being hurled through the air, doing all sorts of crazy falling and flips and, you know, that whole destruction of the planet. And then you kind of get on Earth, and uh, it changes tone a bit, I would say. I think we have a few words from the good general. I offer you a chance for greatness, Jor-El. Take it. Join us. You will bow down before me, Jor-El. I swear it. No matter that it takes an eternity, you will bow down before me. Both you, and then one day, your ass! That's just awesome stuff. Yeah, you match that kind of intensity of Terrence Stamp in that scene with, like, the kind of silver-agey, goofy Lex Luthor with the real estate scam with the missiles. It, you're right, John. It, it doesn't it doesn't seem to match up. There, there are, like, some, like, with Otis or whatever, there are moments of comedy in this, but... Um, at, I think I, I prefer, I mean, Superman 2 is my favorite of the series um, because of Terrence Stamp and, and Jack Halloran and, and Ursa, whose name is escaping me now, Sarah. Sarah Douglas. Oh, Sarah Douglas, thank you. Thank you, Russ, I'm sorry. Uh, but, I mean, Superman 2 is my favorite of the series, but as far as, like, an establishing movie for, you know, a comic book character and, like, the 
in a field, I mean, you have to realize there weren't really comic book movies before this, you know, other than the movie made, you know, based on the, the Adam West movie in the 19, or the Adam West TV show in the 60s. I mean, this is like the first big budget, uh, major stars, you know, like you said at the opening, Russ, Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather, wrote the screenplay. I mean, it's, it's A-list superhero movie, and it's really the first one. I guess to go under the hood a little bit, and I guess then we'll maybe we'll talk a little bit more specifically about favorite parts and and things like that. This movie was plagued with a lot of drama. I mean, like like John talked about in the beginning, we get Zod and Ursa and Nan, and they're on the trial, and they get you know put in the Phantom Zone, and this crazy mirror-looking thing flunks through space, and then that's it. Originally, before Richard Donner was fired by the Salkinds, who are the the producers of this movie, he intended for the finale of the movie to be the missile that he flung into space that was going towards Hackensack was actually, as it flung into space and exploded, that explosion was going to free the, the, the three villains and have the, the basically the movie ending with them flying towards Earth. And uh, and as production of Superman 2 went long and, and, the, and Donner and the Salkinds went at it, Donner was fired. He wasn't able to, to finish Superman 2, even though he had about 80% of it complete. They brought in Richard Lester who it was had done a couple movies with the salt kinds and they kind of shortchanged him on on his director's fee so he was kind of stepping in to to make up for that and and to get paid the salt kinds were were worried that the movie was going over over budget um over schedule and and they were really getting concerned about whether it was going to make any money or not and then it was a huge box office hit and then they fire Richard Donner so it really i mean they were filming up until on on technically what they consider one, which is actually one and two, up until like October of seventy eight, and in this movie was released in December. So there's it's it's just this weird, and that's where we get the Donner cut for Superman two, and and a lot of inconsistencies. Which if we ever get to Superman two, it'll be fun to talk about a, a lot of that stuff. But it's it, it's just kind of this crazy thing, and so you know, I think the intention was when you know to show him in the beginning was the payoff at the end, and we really didn't get the payoff until Superman two. But again, it's just a great taste of of Terrence Stamp as as Zod in in the in Superman one. I mean, just that that speech and his interaction with Jor El and 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 all that stuff was was just. I mean, it 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 just set this this tone. I mean, like we talked about, it set the tone for the rest of the movie. You know, and and then some of it was was broken up to I you know maybe make it a li- you know put a little more levity in there so it wasn't just so serious and dour the whole time. But one of the things that Donner he had a banner printed out. I remember seeing this on on the on the the features on the disc. A banner called uh verse. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this. I know I am. Uh, verse verisimilitude, which kind of means like uh, I guess it's Latin or something for verisimilitude. The seemingness of being real. There you go. And that was that was kind of his mantra. That was Donner's mantra through making this movie. I mean, he wanted this to feel real to feel uh, you know true to its its origin and true to the source and i i think he did it he did a really good job of that i think you, you know the world he he created and and what he's doing you know really came through yeah it, it definitely had a, a good feel of realism for the most of it i mean some of like the flying effects don't exactly hold up today although a lot more of them did than i was expecting like i said having not seen anything more than than clips previously and and yes it, I think it's more goofy than you guys are saying, and certainly less goofy than, say, the Adam West Batman. But even with the goofiness, it was still, like you said, it did have a good 
realistic feeling or maybe slightly hyper real, but not enough to take you out of it. Just enough to let you know it's a movie. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's funny how, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty family, family oriented. I would say, I think they were gearing it at families, but you know, the time is just different. So Superman can still look to see what color underwear Lois has on. And that's okay. And, uh, you know, the seven-year-old uh, naked boy, which... <laughs> yeah, That yeah. really threw me for a loop seeing <laughs> it, this for the first it, time. It is. It's, it's kind of jarring, <laughs> but it's like totally innocent, but just, the, you know, the day and age that we live in, that would never happen. It's like, I've seen that like twice in my life, Superman and the cover of the Nirvana album. It's like, it's like, at least on the Nirvana album, it's an infant, you know, like that doesn't bother me too much. I've even seen that on like when I recently rewatched Buffy and Angel, um, in Angel, when a character is born, I won't spoil beyond that. You see the same thing, but this is like a four or you're saying seven year old kid. It was very jarring. I I mean, you can attest, John, I I was live tweeting the first half of the movie and I, I could not believe that that was in there. I don't know that I'm like personally offended by it, but it was just really surprising. And the best part about it to me is the kid is having a great time. <laughs> the, kid, the, kid, <laughs> the kid in all of those scenes right where they find him has this giant grin on his face. And he's standing there out for the world to see. And he's got his arms up over his head, you know, just smiling away. And it's really it's kind of cool because it is so innocent and you just can't do that now. And it's I don't want to say it's a shame. Like, I don't care if I never see another naked boy in a film again. But but at the same time, it's like, oh, you know, it was so innocent. They could do stuff like that then, and it wasn't like a huge outcry of whatever. 70s were weird, man. Strange times when um, women like Margot Kidder and Karen Allen were considered hot and could open movies. I thought they were both attractive. Oh, Karen Allen was cute, but Margot Kidder, I mean, um, that voice, it's like, it's like tin cans over a gravel road. Well, like I said, I didn't notice it once. Now, granted, she has not aged well. Um, I'm well aware of that fact, but... Yeah, uh, now she's basically Aunt Selma. (laughs) What would you like me to sign for you, darling? And just one other thing about that scene, that it just made me laugh out loud. Did Ma Kent think they found, like, a puppy? (laughs) You know, she's like, maybe we can (laughs) just say that it's our cousin from uh, whatever the hell line she comes up with. I was just like, that's a human child as far as you know. You can't do that. In the 50s, I guess you could. <laughs> yeah, kids were dropping out of the sky all the time in the 50s. So as, as we go through and, and talk about favorite scenes, I'm gonna, I've got a, a, some clips, as you, you've heard a couple before, and I'll, I'll kind of pepper them in um, and then give us some, some opportunity to, to, to yak about them. So I've got a, I've got a good Jor-El, uh, Jor-El clip, and it kind of summarizes. I, I think there's a lot of poignant... Um, and important speeches and and things that that characters say that really um, cement the character of Superman, the character of Clark Kent, and and kind of what he was. And th- this this Jor El speech always kind of gets me. This is him in 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 the fortress as as he spends his uh, twelve years after his eighteenth birthday, letting uh, Jor El drop knowledge on him for for twelve years solid, which I th- always thought was like that's crazy. But uh, but here we go. Live as one of them, Colin. To discover where your strength and your power are needed. And always hold in your heart the pride of your special heritage. 
They can be a great people, Khalil. They wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good. I have sent them you. My only son. There's a line I think it's maybe coming up in the in that same scene where he mentions that you should not uh interfere with their history. Yeah, yeah, that's part of that montage when they're when they're going through and he's you know talking about all the, all the different things. It was in the spacecraft when he was he was coming to Earth. Right. Yeah, so when he did the time travel trick or moving the, you know, time backwards or whatever, like it dawned on me like, "Oh, you did it." You know, but they never really there was never really a consequence, or he never really it never clicked in his head that I shouldn't have done that or or anything like that. It's just one of the things that stood out for me after hearing the speech i always I always love the fact that you know it it just it's just kind of one of those moving things right when you know Jorel says you know they are great people you know kal they you know they, they they wish to be and and you know just talks about how he's he sent them his only son i just again another one of those kind of you know goosebump scenes right i mean it just kind of makes you think it's just like wow this is uh a little deeper than your your average uh pow bam boom uh type of superhero flick yeah, I mean, the speech is so iconic, it got used, you know, many, many years later by Brian Singer and Superman Returns uh, as well. Indeed. I did find it interesting that he shows up at the, uh, the Fortress of Solitude, spends 12 years in, like, this crystal school coma. He comes out, Jor- Jor-El's face turns to stone for no apparent reason. He he goes to the city where he has a great job based on the fact that he can type quickly, and all the cars suddenly suck because in Smallville there were great classic cars, and then he moves to Metropolis where they're just boxy seventy eyesores. Those are some slick threads, Jack. <laughs> I mean, is, could there be a more stereotypical pimp character in your seventies movie? <laughs> there was a lot guy. of that stuff, like though. I mean, like Perry White's willing to give Clark a job over. Lois simply because he can type fast when she's an established reporter and you know it's like a very much sign of the times not just in the way things are done but in the way the script was written you know what I mean I I like the amount of origin that it gave but then skipped ahead just enough you know like when, when you're watching when you're watching Clark be Clark you don't really get told that he's trying to hide that he's Superman and he's going to pretend that he's bumbling. And you could clearly tell that, like, he's good at it at this point. You know what I mean? Like, he's got it down. Yeah. He doesn't mind pretending that he's a total dope and he knows all of the tricks and nuances and the glasses. It almost makes you wonder, like, is this really what he would be like socially because of the way he was raised in the small town and, and everything like that? But they didn't need to show all of that you know i almost feel like if it was a movie done now they would have taken you straight through the okay now you have to move to the big city because that's where you can do the most help and you have to pretend that you're a regular guy like i feel like they would have walked you through the paces like they've done with spider-man you know how many times right so i felt like this was the right amount of origin like people knew superman very well at this point when this movie came out you didn't need to go much further than they did. And, I mean, you really got to give it to Reeve uh, for, um, I mean, not only selling the persona of Superman, but also the physical comedy he does as Clark. 
I mean, there are a few scenes where, as he's Clark, you know, he's, you know, a bumbling, uh, you know, basically nice guy or what have you. And then just a facial expression of him taking off the glasses and all of a sudden he's exuding the confidence that, you know, of Superman. It's, it's a really cool transition and it was cool he was able to do justice to both. I mean, we, we talk about other movies where they, you know, someone's a good, you know, hero, but not a good, um, alter ego or vice versa. And this, I thought he nailed both sides. Well, he yeah. did a great job in that scene specifically. What you're talking about, Jim, in um, Lois's apartment after the the interview with Superman, where he comes in and you get to see him. It's I think it's one shot where he takes off the glasses. He immediately, you know, his whole his stature changes, and uh, like I said, one shot, and then it's another minute or so before he changes back, and you can see it both both directions, and it's pretty impressive. I I love the way. When he's Clark, he's totally the nervous one around Lois. But when he flies in as Superman for the interview, it's total role reversal. Like, she's the nervous one around him now. It just played really well. And I think I think the best point of it is when he catches the bullet. He's doing the whole, yeah. I'm scared, I'm Clark, don't hurt me thing. And he catches the bullet. And then Lois walks away like, you fainted or whatever she says. And he kind of like gives a smirk and chucks the bullet, you know, on the on the concrete. That's where it stood out the most for me. The time period plays into it, right? I mean, it's a little more believable, at least to me, the whole Clark versus Superman thing. When you factor in, he, you know, he doesn't stand. He slouches. He wears the glasses. He has his hair parted different. He's bumbling and... Um, clumsy, and he's got the hat. You know that that was, you know, in an era when people still wore, you know, hats and suits and things like that. That's the thing in the in the modern day. That's a little tougher to pull off. I mean, even in the in the Superman, you know, the Adventures of Superman, the fifties TV show, same kind of thing, right? Clark always wore the suit and the hat, and you know, you combine that with all the other stuff, and it and it and it does disguise your persona more. Today's society, where things are a lot more casual and a lot more lax, it it to me it it doesn't it's it's tougher. To kind of hide that identity because, you know, there's not an, there's not as much to obscure, you know, your persona as, as there was, you know, at, at this point in the late 70s and then, um, you know, moving backward in, in time through through the Superman mythos. Yeah, but I mean, George Reeves in the Adventures of Superman TV series, when he was Clark Kent, he was still Superman. You know, I mean, it was just, he was wearing a hat yeah. and glasses. You know, Chris Reeve really, like, approached these as two different characters. And I think it's really, uh, cool, like, like, the scene John was talking about where he catches the bullet that, that smirk he gives. He goes from being Clark to Superman and then back to being Clark. It's just really, uh, I mean, great acting there. I've got another clip that kind of, uh, speaks to, again, the kind of character that Superman is. I mean, it's, it's, he's very much the big, the, the big blue boy scout, you know, that he's, he's come to be. And, and I think this movie really accentuated the fact that, that this guy is good, uh, you know, to the bone, uh, you know, to to his very core of his being. Why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes, hmm? I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. <laughs> You're going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. I'm sure you don't really mean that, Lois. I don't believe this. Lois? Hmm? I never lie. This is clearly the Superman that Batman hates. <laughs> 70s, I mean, at that point, uh, I mean, movies had gotten very indie and very dark, and Star Wars really opened up the door for, for something like Superman to be made, you know. Uh, it showed that there was a, 
a market for this kind of thing uh, that you know audiences would come out to see a big spectacle blockbuster movie. I mean, it was really started with Jaws, but then you know Star Wars really blew it out, and then Superman the movie was like the next you know big movie after that. And I mean, the seventies, you know, people were, it was kind of a, a darker time in a lot of ways, and a character like Superman, you know, still holding up you know an ideal for America and for you know the truth, justice in the American way. I mean. And through that, you know, the, even in the screenplay, you know, I mean, Lois is very cynical about that. Um, I mean, that, that's something you wouldn't have seen in a portrayal of Superman, you know, other than this, or, but, you know, going backwards from this movie. You know, it's funny. I, I When I watch stuff like this, I, I kind of almost miss that. You know, you may think it's corny or, you know, wishy-washy or whatever, but, you know, the, I think it's kind of cool that, you know, there was a time when, um, you know, things were lighter and, you know, that kind of a, a mentality and that kind of attitude wasn't, you know, taken, you know, negatively or, you know, people didn't kind of look at you funny. I mean, Lois obviously does, but she's a little more cynical than probably most people. But, you know, as a kid watching this, you know, movie and even now as an adult, it just kind of it kind of fills you with a little hope. You know, you kind of you kind of look at it, it makes you feel good, you know, that that somebody would you know, stand up as powerful as he is and, and say the, those kind of things. I just, I, I appreciate that, you know, probably more so now as I get to be an older adult uh, than maybe in my, my 20s and 30s. But, you know, kind of kind of take me back to, to being a kid. It reminds me of that line in Avengers where Coulson says, you know, you know, we could use a little old-fashioned, you know. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things that bothered me this time through, I don't like the way in this series, and it happens once here and it happens in Superman 2, when they just make up powers, you know, they pull powers out of their ass. Like like in this movie, yeah. he jumps out of the window and his suit morphs into his Superman costume as he's falling. You know, if they did some kind of, like, speed-up effect where, like, you saw his hands moving and, like as if he was getting undressed quicker than you could see type thing. That would have been totally fine. Like, I love the way they did it in the revolving door when he sort of just runs in and zips around really fast and he comes out as Superman. Like, that was, you could, you know, you could you could figure out what happened there. You cannot, when he jumps out of the window and he's suddenly in his costume, that was, like, off to me. I, I love the revolving door, too, because it was funny. A movie as old as 1978, and, and granted, keep in mind my age, the fact that he's walking down the street and already by 1978 he can't find a phone booth right. was kind of surprising to me because yeah, you know that's the yeah. kind of thing I'd expect to find now in a Superman movie where he's just like, what the hell do I do? But the fact that it existed back then, that was like a, a really funny treat for me. And, and I did love the effect of the of the revolving door as well. Right. And like, you, you know, in Superman 2, they do the all of a sudden he can throw the S off his chest at people. Um. I think that was two. Yeah, that was two, right? Yeah, and the finger pointing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they made they made fun of that on Family Guy, actually. Right. And, like, even the time reversal thing, like, you could figure, all right, he's flying backwards so fast that it's making the world spin back. Like, you could at least connect the dots on it. Like, when you're falling and you just change clothes, that, that I don't know, that took me out of it for a minute. Probably I would I would say I had more problem with the time tra- time travel than than I did with the quick, quick switch, you know what I mean? I, yeah, I think we'll have a good debate on the whole time travel thing because I have I have an opinion on that that was uh... even at eight even at eight years old I thought that was a cheat. I'm sorry, the whole time travel thing. Even narratively, I thought it was kind of dumb. Well, right? Didn't it undo everything else that he fixed? Like, shouldn't the you know 
other stuff be exploding again if you yeah, went backwards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Like, beyond the, the sheer, you know, at our, our grasp of fictional time travel, beyond even that not making sense, none of the rest of it made sense either. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the web series, uh, How It Should Have Ended. Oh, yes. Have you ever seen the yeah. one for Superman the movie? No. He uh he basically goes and gets one missile and then goes and gets the other and points them both at Luthor. And he's like, wow, how was I able to get the missile so fast? Oh, yeah, I'm Superman. Yeah, he's able to fly around the globe 50 times in 30 seconds when he's spinning the Earth around, but he can't get from Hackensack to uh, California in- fast enough, like seriously. He wasn't mad enough. <laughs> oh, so he's the Hulk now. <laughs> I, it's funny that I, I I guess we'll talk about it. I always hear people say, "Oh, he spun the Earth backwards, and that's what caused time to go in reverse, killing everyone on the planet at the same time." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I always saw it as he. All right, the Earth is is turning like everything else in the universe is turning counterclockwise. So he rotates clockwise and approaches the speed of light or passes the speed of light, whatever, whatever you want to call it, and basically is able to, to travel in the past. He's basically, we're seeing the Earth turn the other way, but I always took it as he just is moving so fast, he's traveling, when he moves that direction, he's actually traveling back in time, and then he, like, overshoots it or whatever, and then starts to go the other way to get to the exact moment where he he needs to be. And now whether or not you know whether we missed a bunch of stuff and he you know shored up the ground underneath where Lois's car would have you know fell in the crack or you know whatever else I don't know. But uh, you know I always thought it was kind of hokey myself. I mean I I will admit. And honestly, the movie was never intended to really end that way. Um, that was that was always intended to be. The ending to Superman two was that was how, kind of how he was going to undo the the three villains thing and and fix it, um, not the not the magic kiss, um, but when when the Salkinds were like, no, we got to cut production and stop, and then you know Donner got fired. We're kind of stuck with the ending that that we got just because of uh, you know behind the scenes shenanigans, not so much that that's how Donner you know really intended I think for that movie to end. Sweet. Yeah, I, I really liked most of the Luthor stuff. You know, as I said earlier, I didn't love the way he was portrayed overall, but I think Gene Hackman nailed what they were trying to get out of it. Um, See, I found him to be a lot of fun. I mean, goofy, but fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I guess I'm being a comic book nerd, and we don't need to delve into, like, what Lex Luthor should be or was in the past or, or whatever. I guess it wasn't what I expected. Um, you know, he just wasn't enough of a threat for it to be a serious movie. You know, again, he's doing the real estate scam. Tessmacher kind of thinks he's like a buffoon. You know, he's got Otis pulling the ladder out from under him and stuff. I mean, it was funny. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, I don't know if it was worthy of, of Lex Luthor. And the, the only other thing I want to mention is that was a real uh, stretch, the way he figured out Kryptonite. Yeah. When he's, yeah. Oh, if there was a meteor from where he's from, it can kill him. And voila, let's go get some kryptonite. Yeah, that was uh, a, a bit of a stretch. but uh... Well, I'm curious, kind of going off that, that comment, uh, me, again, not being a Superman guy, and what I know of Superman being dated you know, 20, 20, 25 years and later from 
this movie, what things were added to the Superman mythos starting with this movie? Like, what things that I might think of as, oh, that's just part of the Superman mythos, weren't until this film came out? Or are there none? I can think of one, uh, the whole thing with the Superman S shield being the uh, cat, the L family crest. Okay. That's, that started with this movie. Yeah. Um, I know Jeff John's uh, run on action comics is very influenced by this movie. I mean, the way uh, he has Gary Frank draw Clark Kent and how he portrays him in the story is very much, uh, you know, styled after Christopher Reeve. He was, uh, he was Donner's production assistant for that's, that's how he got started before comics. Jeff Johns or the artist? Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. How old is he? Uh, well, not for this movie. I mean, later oh, on, okay. he, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, no, I not. thought he was like maybe in his 40s, not like easily 60 or so. Yeah, it was many, many years. I think in the 90s, he was like Donner's, uh, assistant or worked to work for him in some capacity which is how he got him to come on and do that whole last sun arc um in action comics yeah i mean i think the whole krypton in general i mean wouldn't you agree jim is it was really taken from from the you know that was all new i mean in the past it was i think it was kind of more of your typical what people in the 30s and 40s and you know moving forward viewed as an alien um humanoid uh, society looked and, and felt like yeah, it really, uh, that, that production design, like I was saying before, really brought across, like, the sterility of, of, uh, the Kryptonian culture. And it really did affect things going forward. I know, like, in, I know Russ is a favorite of yours, John Burns, you know, Man of Steel reboot of uh, Superman in the 80s. He very much took, you know, some of that aesthetic, uh, from, from this movie. So, I mean, as much yeah. as, as much as, like, the comic, the movie, you know, took its inspiration from the comics, the movie, the, the movie itself is inspired. Uh, you know, comic creators, you know, since it, that, and uh, to this day, if you ask, you know, someone like, Jeff, you know, a comics writer like Jeff Johns or, or Grant Morrison even mentions in Super Gods, you know, he thinks of Superman as Christopher Reeve, you know, that's how iconic this portrayal is. I mean, we've, we've had several Batmans, you know, we've had a couple of Spider-Mans, <laughs> as, you know, as good as Brandon Routh was in Superman Returns, and that's a whole other show. I mean that his performance uh, as Superman is just you know is that iconic that's you know that kind of thing has influenced you know other creators on the character going forward, but you know definitely like you're saying the, the the whole you know production design aesthetic of Krypton the sterility of Krypton before that it was more like uh, you know your typical '60s comic book uh, futuristic planet you know very you know um, Jetsons and, <laughs> and and Art Deco yeah. and, and fake tech and stuff so. One of the things I, I again to talk about the production side of things and just I think at this point Donner was a bit of I, I won't say an unknown I mean he had a hit with the Omen and that's really kind of what elevated his stature at this point but he wasn't like a super well known guy I mean he wasn't like some some crazy you know um, successful director at this point he kind of had this you know hit with the Omen and that's kind of what put him on the Salkinds radar um, moving forward but that stuff in Smallville is like straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. I mean, you look at it and it's just the, the cinematography behind that is just is phenomenal. I just I love all that uh, that uh, Smallville stuff, and I think that inspired a lot of what we saw in in the TV series Smallville. There were a lot of shots of the wheat fields and the you know in the in the barn and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're right. It's very much traditional American, and, and Glenn Glenn Ford you know plays Pa Kent that way too. You know, gives him that. 
that stern advice and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, setting him on his path to uh, the Fortress of Solitude and whatnot. I mean, small performance, but but pretty powerful. Um, but yeah. Yeah, you mean this performance? Is it showing off and somebody's doing the things he's capable of doing? Is, no. is a bird showing off when it flies? No. No, now you listen to me. When you first came to us, we thought that people would come and take you away because when they found out, you know, the things you could do, and that worried us a lot. Then a man gets older and he thinks very differently and things get very clear. And there's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. I don't know whose reason, whatever the reason is, you know, maybe it's because... Uh, I don't know, it's... Uh, but I do know one thing, it's not to score touchdowns. <laughs> Sage advice. We thought people were going to take you away from us because your mother stole you on the side of the road and we never reported it. <laughs> it's it's kind of like uh I don't know if you guys ever read a little bit of a segue here but uh uh Supreme Power by uh by J Michael Straczynski from the Marvel Max line oh, and yeah. it kind of uh it it it, twi- it basically takes that type of scene right where this uh, crazy older couple out in the middle of nowhere finds this alien baby, and uh, the government pretty much comes in and and shuts that down in a hurry, <laughs> takes the baby and runs away. So it's like it's like what if this scene went that way, and then all of a sudden like fifteen hundred army trucks rolled up and 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 things just got hushed. Um, so whenever I see that now with that, I always think of that and just kind of chuckle a little bit. But uh, but but I, I again I like how Donner took you know both fathers and kind of at different points and unknow you know and and in the very very beginning kind of unknowingly you know force uh you know Clark to to become who he becomes you know to put him on this path of doing the right thing and and being good and 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 putting that that focus on him i mean you know obviously as throughout his his childhood and into his teen years um you know the Jonathan Kent character um, molded that and you know i think that's one of the things you know, we didn't see Superman until an hour into the movie, but we really didn't get a lot of that whole values that the Kents instilled in in Clark. I, th- I think a lot of it is implied. You know, we see it in how he acts, how Clark acts as an adult, and how respectful in the in the the, the terminology he uses, and then you know how he acts as Superman. You know, being altruistic and being you know forthright and all that kind of stuff. Now look, the post it flies, the news. Look, Ma, no wires. The Times, Blue Bomb, buzzes Metropolis. The planet. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. I want the name of this flying whatchamacallit to go with the Daily Planet like bacon and eggs. Franks and beans, death and taxes, politics and corruption. I, I don't think that he would uh, lend himself to any ch- cheap promotion schemes, though, Mr. White. Exactly how would you know that, Kent? Um, uh, um just a uh, first impression? Well, anyway, who's talking cheap? I'll make him a partner if I have to, right? Right, I want the real story. I want the inside dope on this guy. Has he got a family? Where does he live? Tony, who is... Mike, what's his name? What's he got hidden under that cape of his? Batteries? Why did he show up last night? Dick, where does he come from? Does he have a girlfriend? What's his favorite ball team, Ken? Now listen to me. I tell you, boys and girls, whichever one of you gets it out of is going to wind up with the single most important interview since... God talk to Moses. 
I, I love that when he says, what's his favorite ball team, Clark raises his finger like he's going to answer the question. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was just thinking of that, too. I would have loved to hear what he was going to say. <laughs> Actually, sir, it's the Smallville, whatchamacallit. And this is uh, the scene almost directly after uh, the helicopter scene, which was, I mean, it's a really great, you know, cliffhanger, classic cliffhanger type scene. And I just thought rendered so well. And then, you know, the end of that punctuated by Lois Lane falling down, uh, fainting on the tarmac. But I love when Perry gives that speech. It's just so like if you imagined in your head the stereotypical newspaper guy, um, that's what Jackie Cooper did in that performance. I mean, the cigar in the mouth, the pointing, the, you know, the loud, the hands moving, everybody just kind of sitting there not knowing or standing there not knowing what to even say. I just, to me, it's just, it's so, uh, it's, it's just so stereotypical and so spot on. I just, I just love that. And just that, that very bit at the end where he's like, since God talked to Moses and he puts the cigar in his mouth and he's just kind of sitting there, I just, I just love the punctuation on, on the end of that. There's also that great scene where he, uh, where Kent is listening, he's giving Kent a lecture, and then uh, Kent starts to hear the thing, you know, uh, attention Superman, you're the only thing with two legs that can hear on this frequency. And he, you know, the scene that Johnny's talking about where he ducks out the window and morphs his clothes, but, uh, he basically pulls a Batman on Perry White. (laughs) It's like, don't just stand here, Kent, get out there! And he turns around and Kent's already, Clark Kent's already long gone. Yeah, he's trying to give him advice basically on how to be more like Superman instead of being like he is. Um, you know, I just, I just love that he's trying to give, uh, life advice, uh, from Perry White. W- one of the things that, uh, that we haven't, we haven't talked about. And I remember, I don't know if you guys saw this when it was on TV. You know, remember back when we were kids and a first run movie, like I didn't have cable until probably, I don't know, 82, maybe 83. So when, Big movies made it onto TV, like when the they would put the Bond movies on, like the ABC Sunday Night Movie or whatever. It was like a big thing for me. Like I got to stay up late to watch it, and it was like an event. And all week long, you'd see the preview on every show you watched on that channel. Back back when there were only four or five networks, you're right. That was a huge, huge yeah. deal. Yeah. And when Superman the movie came to network television, I remember they did it in two parts. Like, they did it two nights in a row, and it was like, I think, 90 minutes one night or something like that, and 90 minutes the next. And the cliffhanger part was the, was the scene, you know, the helicopter scene. And, and it was so funny, because it's like, man, I watched, and at that point I'd already seen it, but it's like, wow, I've sat here and watched this whole thing, and we haven't, you know, barely saw Superman. And for the life of me, because it's been, you know, 30 years ago, I can't remember if it was, like, right after he rescued her that they... they they did the cut point or if it was right before but but basically the the helicopter scene was kind of like the the fulcrum and you know one of the biggest you know quotes from that movie you know kind of the biggest moment you know of course once he becomes superman and and i'm surprised we hadn't talked about but it's just kind of one of those uh you know kind of chuckle moments that you have and i I have i have that clip easy miss i've got you you you've got me who's got you (laughs) i I can't believe it i just that's the chainsaw and the broken glass moment. <laughs> but it's just a really cool, again, you know, the John Williams music swells. You know, they show him Clark running across the street. He starts to open the shirt. You know, he glances, you know, at the at the thing. And it's just, you know, for that to kind of be his, his you know, you know entrance to the world. You know, that's, that's how Superman, you know, comes across. I mean, the, you know, the burn 
Superman, you know, kind of did a little twist on that where it was the big, you know, he rescued the space shuttle. Um, but it was just kind of, you know, his first act as Superman was to rescue Lois Lane, you know. So again, very, very much spot on. But, but I know that that quote is, you know, every time you see something for Superman, the movie, they always show, you know, that that's what you hear. And I like the little scenes after that too, where they cut to that thief with the suction cups. Uh, working yeah. his way up the side of the building and Superman standing, you know, perpendicular to the ground, uh, like, you know, looking at him and he starts to fall and he's behind him again. And then the, it, when he gets the little girl's, uh, you know, cat out of the tree, you know, th- those little, those little vignettes were cool too after his debut. The, the suction cups on the side of the building was a great twist on the old, you know, Adam West, Burt Ward, Batman clips. Yeah. Yeah. Plus possibly a little, a little jab at Spider-Man. Maybe so. Probably yeah, a little early that. for that, but well, during that time, I mean, that was that you know, Marvel was definitely more power, uh, popular than DC. But I love too that you know the girl, you know, he rescues the cat out of the tree and gives it to her. The girl runs in the house and tells her mom, and you can hear the mom spanking her <laughs> for lying um, when she tells her what happened. So just you know, it's just it's things like that that you know you probably wouldn't see. You know, again, John, like you were saying, like like the baby, you know, the naked baby coming out of the the ship you know it's just one of those things that uh very innocent and very much uh you know a, a sign of the times you you definitely wouldn't uh, see something like that now going back to the very beginning of the movie before even the opening credits we have that framing device of the uh i guess not silent theater but like the world war ii era black and white theater i kind of liked that but at the same time it just it was just like it would be one thing if it opened and closed with it. It seemed odd to me that it just opened with it and was never ever used in any way again. Like, what was the point supposed to be that this is, you know, what they were dreaming up all those years ago, or you know, kind of taking it as a transition point from the George Reeves to the Christopher Reeve era? Uh, again, I kind of liked it, but it also seemed weird in retrospect. I don't know. Yeah, it goes from that it goes from that aspect ratio out to you know movie aspect ratio. And then it's never really heard from again. I don't. I don't know if. I guess you could maybe take it two ways. That one was, this is how we're showing. Yes, this started as a comic book, but now you're going to transition from a comic book to a movie. You could also, you know, consider it that, you know, that this is all. You know, this is the live version of the comic that the kid is reading. Um, you know, I I don't know. I I thought it was. I always thought it was kind of interesting, and I never you know, knew quite how to take that. It was, I always just thought it was a weird, you know, thing, especially because it starts with 1938. Maybe that was Donner's tribute to Siegel and Schuster. You know, that was his, uh, his little wink and a nod to the creation of that character by, by throwing that in there. Could be. And, and that, that issue of amazing, uh, amazing fantasy, whoop, wrong company. That issue of action comics, um, was that a real cover or it's not one I recognize and it didn't seem to have Superman in it. It seemed to be almost an action comic set in Metropolis that didn't have Superman. From the panels we saw, the the interiors, yeah, and even the cover. No, yeah, I think the, the cover was like a missile. Um, yeah, the cover was uh, the old school, like Golden Age uh, Superman rocket rocketing to Earth from Krypton. You know, oh, is that what that was? Yeah, with the explosion in the background. I mean, it was the very Buck Rogers shaped uh, original Kurt Swan uh, drawn rocket ship of, uh, of you know young Kal El coming to Earth. I don't think that was an actual um, cover of Action Comics. It doesn't isn't one that jumps out to me. Although, I, I, honestly, I don't have every cover of every Action Comic you know memorized. Slacker. But, well, you know, I'm working on it. 
But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was just uh, made for, for for the film. Another scene from the movie that I liked, although I thought it was hampered by the special effects of the time, um, the Smallville Clark, you know, running past the train. Thought it was a really cool scene, but yeah. also incredibly goofy um, with the effects. Speaking of, of that time period, though, Jim, you said something earlier that I was not aware of in that they overdubbed all of that kid's lines with uh, Christopher Reeve's voice. Yeah, they, yeah. Yeah, they went back and, and uh, had Christopher Reeve read all of Je- Jeff East's lines and they dubbed it in over it so it wouldn't be uh, jarring for the, the audience. And, and from watching the movie, I never noticed. Uh, that was kind of seamless. And if it had any noticeable effect, like not lining up, I probably just attribute it to being you know, having the feel of a movie from that time period where the audio is, is always synced, but it also always feels like it's not actually coming out of the person's mouth, if you know what I mean. So it, it ADR, worked. Bad ADR. <laughs> well, but but not even like that. There's just there's a certain thing about old movies that maybe it is ADR. I don't know. But in just in general, the audio never really, to me at least, sounds like it's coming from the person's mouth. It feels like it's coming from a separate source. Not that it doesn't line up. It's just something about the quality of the audio doesn't match the scene. And it's not something that takes me out. It's just something I associate with that era of movies. And it's something I also associated with these particular scenes. I thought it was more of an homage, but now I guess it turns out it was just uh, digital trickery or pre-digital trickery. Analog trickery. Yeah, <laughs> good old-fashioned yeah. analog trickery. The, the other thing that was always cool is, you know, the tagline for this for a long time was, you'll believe a man can fly. and Bull honky. You, well... <laughs> Given what we got, you know, pre nineteen seventy eight at this point, it always looked really bad. It was it was always you know rear projected or models out of a cannon and that kind of thing. And did it look bad for the time though? Because I have no frame of reference. No, at the I time it was cutting edge uh, special yeah. effects. It really was. That, that's what I would have thought. To me, it it looked much better. You know, my my younger my younger self remembers it looking way way better. Even at this watching, I think it still hold up reason. It held up reasonably well. It, it didn't look as bad as I thought it was going to look, and a lot of it is just. Um, it, it's pretty crazy. They 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 went with like a front projection system, which, which was very new at the time, and and it's 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 kind of cool. You could look it up on on Wikipedia, but I, I've seen other documentaries on, on other movies where older movies where they've used similar techniques you know the old way of doing things like this were was rear projection right like when you look at the movie from the 50s or the 60s and you see somebody driving in a car and you see the crazy you know road and the cars in the background driving by them from the from the windows or even Seinfeld and, and all, that a lot yeah it's, it's all rear projection you know where they they basically put up a big screen and they and they have a movie projector behind it and it projects it in the front but it doesn't work so well because of it has to be very bright and shadows and it's hard to kind of time and, 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 and things like that. So they went with a front projection technique, which is pretty crazy because it uses a screen with material that when the, when the light from the projected source hits it, it reflects it back even brighter than the light that hits it. And they use like this crazy two way mirror. So if you, if you're looking at how they would do it, if, if, if it's like points on a compass, right? From the north pointing straight south, you would have the projected background. So it's like, you know, if Superman's flying, it's, it's you know, the, the, the landscape or, um, you know, him coming up from the ground or whatever it is. At the, at the west direction would be the actor 
um, either on a rig or on, you know, however, standing there or whatever, a setup. And then on the east direction is the camera. And this mirror is positioned in the very center, like in the center of the compass, at a 45-degree angle so that when the projector comes from the north down and hits it, it angles back to the west and projects on the screen. But because it's it's it, it the project, the projection can be so dim because the the screen reflects it back brighter you don't see the pattern on the actor on the actor like the 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 projection doesn't show up on the actor or the actress's face um and then it all bounces back through the mirror and hits the hits the camera on that on that east quadrant um so it's it's a pretty crazy That's crazy wild. technique yeah yeah it's it's really crazy and then they used the zoptic system where you know how at the very end um when he he gets really mad and he he, you know, he's yelling at the sky, and then he takes off, and they show him coming up, you know, straight at the camera. Right. They actually created a, a system where they would zoom, um, in order to make it look like Christopher Reeve is flying towards the camera, even though he's stationary. They they put a zoom, they time the zooms on the projector and the and the and the camera to where they both moved at the same time. So it has the 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 effect of. The, the actor coming closer to the camera, even though he's really not, and the background staying static. So it looks like he's moving away from, you know, you know, from the from the background or they would they would reverse it. Right. The background gets smaller and he would get bigger. So they, they did some really innovative, you know, you know, pre-digital was pretty crazy. The other way they could do it is traditional like blue screen like they did a lot in Star Wars. And then they had to use optical printing and then you have matte lines and and, you know, if dust gets in there when they use the optical printer, then, you know, it just jacks it up and they got to refilm and it's very expensive. So this way was kind of like a, a cheat. You know, it was just it was a way to use old, you know, 30s and 40s techniques and could have put a little bit of a spin on it and do it. So it, it was pretty, you know, again, by today's standard, it looks very crude. But, you know, for back in the day, um, very technologically advanced and very, um, you know, a lot of people really coming up with crazy tricks to get you know, bend light certain ways and use reflective material um, to do it. And I'm cynical, but like like I said earlier on in the episode, even though they don't really hold up for the most part, it looked better than I expected. And uh, while I didn't believe a man could fly for a second, it did look fun and, and good. In, in a sense, anyway. That screen material is what gave him the idea to they basically cut all the screen material up and pasted it on to the Kryptonians' costumes, and that's how they got that crazy glow effect. Because oh. that, that that screen material has like bits of glass or something on it, so it 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 that's how it gets that crazy reflective quality. But that's how they got the effect on the Kryptonian's costume. It was like almost by accident that they that they kind of did that. All right, so I guess now we'll get to our our ratings portion. As like we said before on Real Heroes, um, we plan on putting on the website uh, kind of an expanded article. So if you if you go to um, either hhwlod.com you'll you'll find the the link for the article or therealheroes.com you'll find the article link for this episode and it'll have um, a lot of the technical detail breakdown that we talked about um, as far as production dates and stars and uh, budget and you know intake and all that kind of stuff um, as well as each of our individual ratings and then we'll do kind of like an average ranking below that and again the point is over time to put up a page that has how we rank these movies overall so hopefully six months or a year from now or, you know, however long this goes on, hopefully, hopefully for quite some time that you'll see, you know, overall what we, you know, which movies we think are very good and which ones we think are, are very poor or just, you know, relatively how they rank um, amongst each other. And I, I think that'll be uh, that'll be fun to, to track over time. So 
we're going to give these a rating out of 10 just so we can get more granularity over time. Um, so I will I will let Mr. Dietz go first. What, what do you give this out of 10 S shields, Mr. Mr. Jim? I definitely give this a nine out of ten. This definitely is an upper echelon of superhero movies of all time. All time, and I only took a, a one away because of some of the dated uh, ness of it. I mean, it is almost forty years old now. Uh, I, th- I think it really holds up, though. I mean, narratively, it might seem a little slow compared to some of the modern films, but I mean, it, it, it really tells a good story. It really establishes a character. It set up the template for, like, like I said, for superhero movies for decades to come and it has that iconic the iconic performances in it you know by chris reeve and, and and gene hackman like we said marlon brando i mean i really put it up there in the, the highest echelon superhero movies so i give it a nine out of ten mr m i will go slightly lower and give it an eight um i do think it holds up I think I'd probably, again, Lex Luthor is probably my biggest problem with it, although I like Gene Hackman's performance. I just, I wish they went with a, a different route, especially after seeing uh, Terrence Stamp and, and Zod in the beginning. I, I probably just would hope for a, a bigger threat in the film, but it does really hold up well. Uh, I'll go with an 8. The effects, although groundbreaking at the time, that's probably where it fails a little bit when you watch it now. I think to give it a 9 or higher, that wouldn't be fair to some of the really cool stuff that we're seeing come out now. So I'm going to I'm gonna stick it as an 8, definitely you know, putting the superhero genre of movies on the right path, no doubt. Dr. Esquire? I kind of wavered in between two scores. Um... Like I said, the first time I've seen it, I really liked it a lot more than I expected to. There's certain elements, um, like the fact that he spends the first two, well, I guess the center third of the movie, the the first third is Superman, or the first half is Superman, rather, fighting just regular criminals and doing not mundane stuff, but just more Superman-y type stuff and not not fighting a supervillain or diverting a nuclear missile, which has no fallout, apparently, but that's another story. Um... I really like that. Like, when we've talked in the past about, you know, the Spider-Man movies or other superhero movies. There's some superheroes that I want to see fighting a supervillain. And then there's others, like a like a Spider-Man, and I'll say even Superman here, I like seeing them just fight petty criminals. There's something fun about that, not even just as a montage, but just as, you know, a, a, a re- reoccurring thread throughout a movie. I, I want to see that more because it just, uh, it helps build the character without you know, constant, you know, Power Rangers style. Oh, I fought him this time and I won, but he got away. And then I fought him this time and I lost. And now he's more powerful or whatever. I really like that element. Yes, the special effects are, you know, 30 years old or so, but they hold up better than I expected. So I was wavering between a 7, 5, and an 8. I think I'm going to give it an 8 because I really did enjoy it and I would watch it again. I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but definitely very good and certainly very influential on... Many of the superhero movies that came after, I could see a lot of, um, I could see a lot of Thor in the way they did Superman. What, you know, just that winning smile, and I could see, you know, a lot of Spider-Man and certain things. I could see a lot of things that other superhero movies have pulled from this. Some done just as well, some better, and some not nearly as well. I thought it was very good. I'll give it an eight, and uh, I'll watch it again. And I look forward to when we eventually someday watch Superman two. Russ, uh, what did you think of the movie? What is your final score? I'm 
I'll probably be the most generous of all. I give this a 9.5. And honestly, the only thing that really kept this from a 10 for me is Margot Kidder's uh, casting as Lois Lane. Um, I, I think that was kind of a detriment uh, to it. I, I, I also agree some of the silliness around the Luthor side um, kind of dinged it a little bit for me. But overall, I, I really hold this up as how to you know, do a superhero origin, how to make things not seem campy and silly, um, and how to take a comic book character and translate it properly to film. I think the score has a lot to do with that. I think the score helps kind of like Star Wars. You know, Star Wars could have been a really silly, goofy kind of kind of flick. And that score kind of gives it some, you know, some weight and some uh, some seriousness to it. And uh, and just like I said, at the at the beginning of the, of the show, whenever I hear that that theme music, that John Williams theme music, I mean, it's just like the hair on my arm stands up because it just it, it's just so iconic and just it just brings me back to you know, to my childhood and, and growing up with, with, you know, this movie and, 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 you know, the others. And now granted it, it, it kind of, you know, goes off the rails pretty, pretty quick, um, after two, but, uh, but yeah, I think this one just is head and shoulders uh, above a lot of, of superhero movies. And, and again, watching it, it's, it's probably been a couple years since I've seen it. Um, and, and the fact that I, I was purposely watching it with a more critical eye, and that it held up as well as it did, and and I enjoyed it as much as I did, um, is is kind of where I'm at with that. So so I st- I stand by nine point five. So two eights, a nine, and a nine point five. Not too bad. Certainly an excellent way to start off this series. Yeah, it'll set a nice high bar. So I'm curious now that we've started it off so high, how are we going to figure out what to watch next? We are going to spin the wheel, literally. Why don't we ask our listeners to name the wheel? If you have an idea of what we can call the wheel, you know, write in our Facebook group or uh, hit us up on Twitter or send us an email and let us know what you think we should call the wheel. That's a grand idea. Um, but like we kind of talked about, the way we're going to do this for, for each subsequent show is we're literally going to kind of spin the wheel and um, we've got all of these these shows with a numeric value equivalent and whatever number comes up, that's what we're doing. So... Um, are you guys ready to give it a give it a give it a turn? I'm so excited! If you hit the hundred, you you win a thousand dollars. So spin it hard. What if it comes up double zero? Howard the Duck is the default movie. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. All right, here we go. Put your back into that one, huh, Russ? I did. All right, so the the wheel has spoken, and the wheel has told us next month's episode of Real Heroes will be Nick Fury starring oh. the Hoth. <laughs> the Hoth. <laughs> so this tells us that the wheel is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I would assume that the scores may be a little lower than Superman next month. Are we allowed to go into negative numbers? Yeah, it'll be awesome. We're gonna set the bar very high and very low, so we'll have our we'll have our min and max um, um, pretty quick. But yeah, Nick Fury, the made-for-TV movie from the uh, I guess the '90s, I would say the '90s. I think it's like '92, '93, um, maybe. Yeah, starring David Hasselhoff and Lisa Renna. So you get a little good with a little bad there. 
Definitely on DVD. I saw them hawking it at Best Buy when the Avengers was coming out. They were trying to pass it off as something that may have some tie to the Avengers. 1998, actually. Uh, surprisingly late. The trailer is available on YouTube if you want to see what we're in for. Again, so like we talked about, we're going to do the good and the bad and the worthless. And uh, so you can tune in next month to find out whether we feel that this is good, bad, or worthless. But I am excited. Um, you know, one of the things that drove us to doing this podcast is not just to talk about all the great movies, but to talk about the not so great ones, too, because um, it'll be a lot of fun just, you know, picking apart and and just kind of riffing on on stuff. So I am I am actually looking forward to doing this next month. Sounds good. Yep. Should be a good time. So I guess that's it. See you next time. I'll be ready with my eye patch. Have a good one, everybody. I'll bring the cigars for chomping. This country is safe against Superman, thanks to you. No, sir. Don't thank me, Warden. We're all part of the same team. Night.